This is the first time. Chirp Radio's live storytelling and music series recorded at Martyrs in Chicago's North Center neighborhood. Here's your host, Jen Sodini. Our next reader, Mwahaha, Billy Kolb. He's a... He's been at Chirp Radio since the beginning. He was the music director for Chirp for five years. Billy now sits on the board of directors at Chirp. He's a good friend. Guys, play, with pleasure, give a warm welcome to Billy Kolb. When I was 14, I asked my parents for an electric guitar. I wanted a guitar so I could start a band. And to be totally honest, I wanted to start a band because I thought it would make me cool. And I thought it might be fun, but mostly I wanted to be cool. I was definitely not cool. My idea of big weekend plans was staying over at a friend's house, talking about computers and playing SimCity 2000 until three in the morning. If there was an important social gathering, I'd typically hear about it on Monday. But now I figured was the time to change all that. In the fall, I'd be going to high school, and with only a handful of my current classmates. It'd be a chance for reinvention, a new beginning. By God, I wouldn't just be at the important social gatherings. My band would be the reason for those gatherings. So I asked for a guitar. And for whatever reason, my folks agreed to it. That spring, my dad took me to the guitar center near our suburban Minneapolis mall. Standing there in front of a shimmering wall of six strings, we were approached by a tall, lanky figure in jeans and a black polo. His name tag said Wayne. What can I help you fellas with today? Wayne asked. (laughs) He had long, stringy brown hair and rough features that suggested he definitely knew how to rock. (laughs) He must be in a band, I figured, and only moonlighted at the store because he loved guitars so much. I was ready to hear him out. I told Wayne I wanted a guitar. He nodded sagely and asked what kind of music I liked. Uh, alternative rock, mostly, I said. Wayne pulled a guitar off the rack and plugged it into a nearby amp. You like Nirvana? Sure, I said. The chords to Smells Like Teen Spirit roared out of that amp in grungy perfection. I remember thinking it sounded just like the CD, but it was happening right in front of me, performed by the skilled hands of an actual human. It was the most incredible thing I'd ever witnessed. That afternoon, we walked out of the store with a cheapy Fender Stratocaster, sunburst finish, obviously, plus a crate practice amp, a suede strap, and an assortment of strings and picks. My destiny awaited. I practiced relentlessly that summer, teaching myself a handful of power chords and struggling to put them in the right order to produce recognizable songs. As fall approached, things began to come together. Nate, who I knew from grade school, had taken up the bass and would be going to the same high school as me. And Riley, a kid a year younger than us, but mature enough to hang out with us older kids, was taking guitar lessons, actual lessons, something I hadn't even considered. And he was pretty good. When school started, Nate connected with a quiet kid named Dan, who, crucially, had a drum set. We hit it off, and by November, we were hanging out and practicing on the weekends. Our skills were limited, and so was our repertoire. 
We favored the familiar radio rock of the mid to late 90s, so we started there, particularly the songs that didn't go too fast or have too many chord changes. <laughs> Riley handled any solos, and Nate and I split singing duties. We argued over what to call ourselves, eventually settling on the fiasco. <laughs> the name fit. We had fun, but we were sloppy. I wanted the band to be really good, undeniably good, so we could impress people and be cool. And maybe the other guys did too, but finding motivation was tough. We'd get together, run through a couple covers, and then gravitate over toward the couch, where there was always an endless supply of Doritos, Mountain Dew, and TV reruns. An hour later, we'd pick up our instruments and play a couple more. In an especially ambitious afternoon of practice, we'd play maybe five or six songs, none of them very well. But we kept at it, and in January, Riley came to us with an opportunity. His guitar teacher was hosting a showcase for his students at a cafe downtown. Here was our chance to show people what we could do, the fiasco's first gig. It wasn't much. We'd have about 20 minutes, enough for a few songs. But it was in front of people, at a real place, with a stage and lights and a PA. We were in. We spent the next few weekends putting together a set of our very best material, which is to say, nearly everything we knew how to play at that time. <laughs> Nate and I would take vocals on a couple songs each, and in the middle, he and Dan would play our sole original, an improvised slap bass and drums instrumental that Nate called Afghanistan Banana Stand in G minor. It was actually an E minor, but none of us knew that at the time. And then came our big debut. As momentous as it would have been to me then, many of the details are unfortunately lost to me now. I remember the ride there, debating the set order in Dan's family minivan, barely containing our excitement, joking around to hide our nervousness. I remember one of the bands that went on before us, some older kids with goatees who played a terrible kind of noodly prog metal fusion. I remember setting up our gear on stage, staring out into that darkened room, unable to make out any familiar faces. We played our songs, and as far as we were concerned, we crushed it. Sure, I accidentally sang the same verse during, twice during Everclear's Santa Monica, but nobody seemed to notice. Nate and Dan did their weirdo instrumental jam. We blew through our five-song set and, to resounding parental applause, triumphantly exited the stage. We paid no attention to any of the acts that followed. We were too busy basking in our own glory. The four of us holed up in a booth, drinking celebratory Cokes recapping how awesome we'd been. After a while, Riley stepped away and returned with a question. The showcase was running ahead of schedule, he said, and they needed to fill time. Would we be willing to go back up there and play a couple more? We huddled there in the booth and talked it over. We'd pretty much shot our wad on that first set. <laughs> Did we even have material for an encore? There was that Foo Fighters deep cut we were working on. Riley had the guitar part down, but... I wasn't sure I had the lyrics memorized yet, and I wasn't about to repeat my Everclear mistake. <laughs> that left two surefire options that we could fall back on. A really dumb Green Day song called Brain Stew, and Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit. I didn't want to do it, and I said so. Sure, we could play them, but these were the first songs I'd ever learned back when I got my guitar. I felt like an artist being asked to display his crude early works alongside his latest triumphs. <laughs> And nothing against Teen Spirit. Sure, I liked it, but it seemed so obvious. It was the most popular Nirvana song, not the best one. It didn't really represent the music we loved and wanted to play. It felt like scraping the bottom of the barrel, and I wanted us to be better than that. 
The other guys were unsure about it too, but slightly more optimistic. We could do this, they said. It'll be fine. It's a chance to play some more, and isn't that the point? Besides, they need us to. I relented. We carried our gear back on stage and plugged in. We slogged our way through the Green Day song. It felt repetitive, totally unimpressive, but competent. Maybe this was okay. And then the Nirvana one. I took a deep breath and strummed out those same opening chords I'd heard Wayne play back at Guitar Center months before. The ones that had wowed me with the possibilities of being a super cool guitar playing rock dude. Just before the rest of the band kicked in behind me, I heard someone, maybe one of the goateed prog metal guys, maybe nobody in particular, groan loudly from the front of the room. Oh God, not this shit. I panicked. He was right. This guy had seen right through me, instantly confirming all of my doubts and insecurities. I was a fraud. I was a sham. I knew I should have stood my ground and not compromised my artistic integrity by going back up on stage. Everything else had been okay, but now we'd overplayed our hand. This was a bad decision. It was the wrong song. It was too obvious. My fight or flight instincts had kicked in. I felt my face go hot. I wanted to chuck my guitar and run, except the rest of the band was still up there with me. There was no way out. I had to finish the song. But my heart wasn't in it. In fact, my heart was nowhere near me, having escaped up my esophagus and out of my body just a moment before. I kept on playing because I knew I had to, but inside I had gone numb, blacked out, completely shut down as a defensive mechanism against my shame. We made it to the end after what felt like the longest five minutes in the history of live music. We got off the stage, packed up, found our seats again. At some point, I guess we went home. As an adult, I know now it couldn't possibly have been as bad as it felt then. What an asshole, right? Like heckling some kids who just wanted to play music? I should have sneered at him. I should have shoved my radio-friendly punk rock attitude right down his stupid face hole. But I couldn't, and the feeling of being totally exposed in that moment has stayed with me. The fiasco would play again. We kept practicing, ate more Doritos, watched more TV, and learned more songs. Over the next few months, we performed in coffee shops, church basements, talent shows, wherever we could. We grew in confidence and in skill. I eventually got the verses to Santa Monica right, but we never did Teen Spirit again. That spring, Dan found out his family was moving to New Jersey. We had a send-off concert for him in my parents' backyard, and though we didn't know it at the time, it would be the band's final show as well. We had planned to find another drummer and carry on, but by then, Nate and I were drifting apart. He had made new friends that year, friends who didn't want to hang out with me, and I resented him for it. He'd found a way to be cool without me. The fiasco didn't break up, it just sort of fell apart over that summer. Some years later, after Nate and I had come to our senses and resumed our friendship, we were hanging out with Riley and reminiscing about the band. As it turned out, Riley's dad had caught that first gig on home video, and Riley had the VHS tape. We watched it for laughs, wincing occasionally at how earnest and awkward we were back then, trying so hard to be teenage rock stars on a cafe stage. Despite our best efforts, we were absolutely not cool. <laughs> Being in a band hadn't changed a thing about that. But it felt okay. The fiasco marked the first and last time I performed in a band in front of an audience. I still have my Fender Strat tucked away in a gig bag at the back of a coat closet. 
I've moved it from apartment to apartment throughout my adult life. But I haven't played it in years. The strings haven't been changed in a decade. And yet I can't let go of it. Every now and then, a mood strikes me and I dream about picking it up again. If I did, it would be for the right reasons. I don't need to be cool anymore. But it might be fun. Thank you.
You've been listening to a Chirp Radio podcast of our live storytelling and music series, The First Time. Our storyteller was Billy Kalb, and The First Time 2 performed Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana. The First Time 2 is Liam Davis and Gerald Dowd. To hear more First Time pieces, check out the series' website, firsttime.chirpradio.org. And you can find other podcasts produced by the station at chirpradio.org slash podcasts. Chirp Radio. Hear what's next.